Are you a fan of the Harry Potter Therapy Podcast? Do you want more episodes, more magic, and more guests? Do you want our show to reach and inspire more of those in need? Well, we can really use your support. If you would like to help us in our mission to spread awareness and destigmatize mental health struggles, we ask that you please subscribe, rate, review, and share our podcast with friends, family, and folks you might think would enjoy and benefit from our content. Most importantly, please consider joining our Patreon community and becoming a contributor. As one of our Patreon contributors, you will get access to exclusive content, announcements, videos, and more. You will join a community of like-minded pop culture enthusiasts that celebrate our connections to our favorite movies, TV shows, icons, and superheroes. As a contributor, you will also be helping us support mental health charities as 15% of our proceeds are donated monthly. To join our Patreon community, go to www.patreon.com, make an account, search for Superhero Therapy, and select one of our tiers. Now, on with the show. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello all you magical people out there and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I'm your host Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. So today we are going to be exploring Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 9, Grim Defeat. Grab your coolest jammies and a sleeping bag because it's a jiggity jammy jam in the Great Hall. <laughs> After Sirius Black's attack on the portrait of the fat lady, students have to sleep in the Great Hall for protection while the professors search the castle for him. I've searched the astronomy tower and the owlery, sir, but there's nothing there. Oh, thank you. Yes, the third floor's clear too, sir. Very good. And I've done the dungeons, headmaster, no sign of Black nor anywhere else in the castle. I didn't really expect him to linger. Remarkable feat, don't you think? To enter Hogwarts Castle on one's own, completely undetected. Quite remarkable, yeah. Any theories on how he might have managed it? Many. Each as unlikely as the next. You may recall, prior to the start of term, I did express concerns about your appointment of Professor... Not a single professor inside this castle would help Sirius Black to enter it. I'm quite convinced the castle is safe, and I'm more than willing to send the students back to their houses. What about Potter? Should he be warned? Perhaps, but for now, let him sleep. For in dreams, we enter a world that's entirely our own. Let them swim in the deepest ocean, or glide over the highest cloud. All the kids are wondering how Sirius Black got into the castle. This really has to have the teachers and everyone on edge. What's the best way to handle anxiety of this magnitude? Well, I think having the kids all together is probably helpful, but I think more than anything, explaining to everyone what's going on, being forthcoming and truthful with the students can be a lot more helpful than leaving them in the dark and leaving them guessing because most people, especially young kids and teens, imagination tends to be 
a lot wilder than the truth. So I think letting people know what's going on and also letting people know what the safety plan is, what they will do, what the teachers will do if Sirius Black is spotted. So basically as much communication as possible. Mm-hmm. So in this chapter, one of the biggest events is the Gryffindor Quidditch game. And this game was initially scheduled against the Slytherin team. Due to Draco's fake injury, however, Harry and his teammates have to immediately last minute play the Hufflepuff team. Oliver Wood, the Gryffindor team captain, is very upset because they practice to play against Slytherin's playing style and Hufflepuff's is different. They don't have time to change their strategy. Circumstances in life sometimes make plans difficult to adhere to. What advice do you have for disrupted plans and unexpected changes? I think taking a moment just to notice some of the frustration, anger, and maybe anxiety that's starting to show up in our body. Maybe normalizing those feelings because anybody in that situation would feel the same way. Maybe noticing where in our body we're feeling these emotions. Maybe we're feeling it as a tightness in our chest. Maybe as a tightening of our shoulders or the clenching of our jaw. Maybe taking a few moments to unclench and unwind some of these sensations. Allowing our body to get more into equilibrium instead of being in that fight or flight mode. And then after having taken this self-compassion break, this kind of mindfulness break, then maybe reconfiguring the strategy to the best of our options. That's really all we can do. But supporting ourselves in that moment by being mindful, by staying present and practicing some of these muscle tension alleviating exercises can actually allow us to be more present and respond a lot more cautiously, but also with a lot more preparation than if we are acting and reacting purely out of anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. The captain and seeker for the Hufflepuff Quidditch team is named Cedric Diggory. According to the girls on the Gryffindor team, Cedric is the tall, good-looking one. This happens to girls all the time as well, where they lose their identities to their looks. What does this say about someone's attractiveness overpowering their identity? Thank you. I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's true. It happens to people of all sexes and people of all gender identities where they're described in that way they're described as the attractive one but then who they are as a human gets lost so i'm really glad you brought it up because i think that even after the following book even after the fourth book sometimes when we think of cedric diggory some people refer to him as he was the good looking one but people forget that he was also really kind he was charismatic he was compassionate he was somebody that really cared for people And he was a really good Quidditch player, too. Mm -hmm. He was an all-around good dude, really. Professor Lupin had to miss his class due to his illness that he had in the last chapter. He's still suffering from it. Harry and the rest of the class are surprised to see that Snape is Lupin's substitute teacher. Turn to page 394. Excuse me, sir. Where's Professor Lupin? 
That's not really your concern, is it, Potter? Suffice it to say that your professor finds himself incapable of teaching at the present time. None of the class liked this idea. It did get me thinking about substitutes and how they're generally treated and viewed. Whether it's students treating subs poorly or subs treating students bad, what do you think it is about substitutes that initiate different behaviors and treatment? I think for some students, there's the assumption that this is not the real teacher, so I don't have to show them the same kind of respect and I don't have to work as hard as I would with my regular instructor. I think the assumption is this person is not the one grading me, so I don't have to impress them or do all the work. And that's really unfair because I imagine it's really hard for substitute teachers in general to receive the kind of support and respect from students that they need, not to mention that for a lot of public school substitute teachers, there's an expectation that they will follow the instructor's curriculum in their absence. And yet, if a lot of students are not respecting or responding to the substitute, unfortunately, that makes it very challenging for that human. Back in the day, I had some pretty bad substitute teachers that were kind of mean. I, I figured that maybe they were mistreated by their students in the past and they were just were like, well, I'm going to jump the gun here. I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. And I did want to also weigh in on the way that Snape handled Lupin's absence. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because Snape, in a lot of ways, nearly announces to the class what's going on. He doesn't flat out say your professor is a werewolf, but he might as well have. Through a number of different exercises and hints, he essentially lets people know what's going on with their professor. It really points to how sometimes people are treated when they're on medical leave, mm. where sometimes their private medical condition is disclosed to other people, causing rumors and judgment, and that person's private medical information is then being violated. And so that really brought that up for me and how heartbreaking that is when that happens. Yeah. I mean, not only does he bring it up werewolves and things like that, werewolves are kind of more advanced than what the class is learning at the time anyways. Turn to page 394. Werewolves? But sir, we've just begun learning about red caps and hinky punks. We're not meant to start nocturnal beasts for weeks. Quiet. Snape forces them to learn about werewolves. So that's exactly what we're going to do here right now. Please enjoy this episode of Cultural Curiosities on Werewolves. In folklore, a werewolf translated from German as man-wolf or a lycanthrope, which is Greek for wolf person, is a human with the ability to shapeshift into a wolf, generally transforming on the night of a full moon. Werewolves have been represented as humans that have been purposely placed under a curse or experienced the change due to an affliction caused after being bitten or scratched by another werewolf. So why the connection to the moon? Though the full moon was originally only one of the many possible causes of lycanthropy, it was the one that stuck in the public's mind the most. Although a beautiful concept, the age-old stories and illustrations of wolves howling at the moon is nothing more than a myth. Their howls may be heard at night, but their howls are not directed towards the moon. Instead, wolves travel in packs and howl to communicate socially amongst themselves. Their howls are used to call for support, rally a hunt, instigate challenges, or signal territorial boundaries. Many people still associate the moon with werewolves and madness. In fact, the word lunatic originally meant someone who went crazy with every phase of the moon, kind of like a werewolf. 
The root of this word is Luna, which means moon. Most people these days don't believe in moon-caused insanity, but we still talk about lunatics, something meaning clinically insane people. Another interesting fixture with werewolf lore on the moon is the creature's vulnerability to silver. Many cultures throughout history have connected silver to the moon. Silver represents a nurturing, purifying, and protective power. It's reflective and it has the ability to replicate. The purifying properties of silver combined with the curse-like affliction associated with werewolves produces a very poetic resolution to the power of this otherwise uncontrollable beast. As the result of prevailing superstitions surrounding magic and witchcraft, you might think this snarling creature is a creation of the medieval and early modern periods. In reality, the werewolf is far older than that. The earliest surviving example of man-to-wolf transformation is found in the Epic of Gilgamesh from Mesopotamia around 2100 BC. However, the werewolf as we know it first appeared in ancient Greece and Rome in ethnographic, poetic, and philosophical texts such as Ovid's Metamorphosis Book 1. According to this text, Lycaon, the legendary king of Arcadia, was himself turned into a wolf. He was turned into a wolf by the gods as punishment for trying to trick the god Zeus into eating human flesh. Lycanthrope comes from the Greek word lykos, meaning wolf, and can also be attributed to the character Lycaon. Ovid's passage is one of the only ancient sources that actually goes into detail on the act of transformation. His description of the metamorphosis uses haunting language that creates a correlation between Lycaon's behavior and the physical manipulation of his body. Ovid's passage reads as follows. He tried to speak, but his voice broke into an echoing howl. His ravening soul infected his jaws. His murderous longings were turned on the cattle. He still was possessed by bloodlust. His garments were changed to a shaggy coat and his arms into legs. He was now transformed into a wolf. Ovid's Lycaon is perhaps the clearest influence of the modern werewolf as the physical manipulation of his body hinges on his prior immoral behaviors. It is this that has contributed to the establishment of the monstrous werewolf trope we see today. The werewolf has become a prevalent fixture of supernatural fiction, whether it be film, television, or literature. It can be found in countless books, films, and television shows like the horror classic The Wolfman or Teen Wolf, Twilight, Underworld, American Werewolf in London, Supernatural, the Harry Potter series, and many, many others. Snape asked the class about the distinction between werewolves and a true wolf. Hermione obviously knows, and after trying to answer his question, Snape takes five points away from Gryffindor. Now, which one of you can tell me the difference between an animagus and a werewolf? No one. How disappointing. Please, sir. An animagus is a wizard who elects to turn into an animal. A werewolf has no choice. With each full moon, when he transforms, he no longer remembers who he is. He'd kill his best friend if he crossed his path. Furthermore, the werewolf only responds to the call of its own kind. Oh! <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Malfoy. That is the second time you've spoken out of turn, Miss Granger. Are you incapable of restraining yourself, or do you take pride in being an insufferable know-it-all? He's got a point, you know. Five points from Gryffindor. As an antidote to your ignorance, and on my desk by Monday morning, two rolls of parchment on the werewolf with particular emphasis on recognizing it. Sir, it's Quidditch tomorrow. Then I suggest you take extra care, Mr. Potter. Loss of limb will not excuse you. Page 394.
He calls Hermione an insufferable know-it-all. This obviously hurts her feelings, and it's explained that Ron and others have also called her a know-it-all on different occasions themselves. Why do you think some people like Hermione are disciplined and shamed for knowing things and being an ambitious student? In case of Snape, for example, he is a bully. He bullies his students, especially Gryffindor students, because he himself was bullied and it's a poor excuse for his unacceptable actions. And I think that he didn't have anything else to punish Hermione for. If Hermione had been a Slytherin, he would have awarded her five points instead of taking five points away. So I think in the case of Snape here, what we're seeing is prejudice. Yeah. In the case of other students, I think sometimes seeing somebody who is studious and hardworking, it might actually remind them that they themselves are not studying as hard as these other students. And so they might feel a sense of embarrassment or shame. And then as a way of lashing out, might then call somebody a know-it-all, which is really unfortunate because it's a way to almost bully somebody who is trying to be a good student. Yeah, they're trying to work hard. Is that a little bit of a jealousy too? It's possible for some people. Hmm. So back to the main event of the chapter. During the Quidditch match, Harry swears he sees the silhouette of a large shaggy dog while he's looking for the snitch. The shaggy dog represents the Grimm. After seeing the shaggy dog when he left the Dursley's house and Professor Trelawney's constant predictions about Harry's Grimm, it's no wonder he's seeing things. What's the power of suggestion and how can it lead to things like hallucinations? And I don't know if this was a hallucination. It might have been an illusion and Sometimes we start seeing signs when we expect to see them, for example. The power of suggestion is quite a powerful one. So, for example, people who are given a placebo drug might be told that this is a potent painkiller and they do, in fact, report lower pain rates after taking a placebo. And we see this in many different ways, with, in many different cultures, with people all around the world. And I imagine that here, Harry expecting to see signs of his demise might have caused him to see certain shapes that he otherwise might have missed or might not have paid too much of an attention to. And so if, if clouds form a certain shape, we normally might not pay attention unless we are primed to look for that particular shape. And so in Harry's case, I think he was already on high alert and he was primed to look for any signs of danger. And then when he found something, he experienced something called almost like a confirmation bias where just seeing a particular maybe symbol or shape confirmed his belief or he took it as a confirmation of his belief. Mm -hmm. Well, sticking with Harry seeing things while searching for the snitch a little bit later, Harry suddenly spots like a hundred Dementors below him. Unlike the Grimm, these Dementors are very, very much real. Being around so many Dementors seems to snap him into the memory of his mother's death. Although he was only one years old, Harry was remembering what happened that night. He hears his mother screaming. He hears her pleading for Voldemort to kill her instead of Harry. It's a very, very traumatic memory. Knowing what we know about Dementors, how could the presence of depression be so powerful that it essentially knocks Harry back into his first year of life? 
Well, I think for a lot of people, when they're experiencing depression, it might feel almost as if like they've been punched in the gut. It feels like, you know, breath or all of their happiness has been almost knocked out of them. And it might cause them to remember all similarly depressing or devastating experiences. A lot of people might shame people who are going through depression by saying, hey, you know, you have to be stronger than this or buck up or look on the positive. But the truth is, a person that's going through depression or PTSD is already fighting the most challenging fight of their life. And in those moments, they might be reliving their most painful memories because emotions are kind of like a magnet for memories. When we feel a certain emotion, like a magnet, our body might remember all the other times we felt a similar emotion, maybe an emotion of loss or pain, emotional pain. And then we might, like a movie, go through a number of different painful experiences. There are different ways of managing it when it happens, some of these flashbacks when they come up. And just as we mentioned earlier, one way is to notice the way that these sensations occur in the body. So for example, when we are depressed, we might feel kind of like an empty sensation in our stomach or maybe a stomach discomfort or maybe a pressure in our chest. And just noticing where in the body these sensations live, maybe placing our hands on those areas of our body as a way of giving ourselves a mini hug. And then maybe allowing those areas to kind of unwind, almost as if unclenching a fist, to alleviate a little bit of that pain. Now, it's not a light switch kind of a moment. It will not make our depression go away, but it might give us enough of an ease to be able to breathe through that moment, to be able to get through that moment, and then to be able to find our mindfulness skills, to notice in this very moment right now, I am safe, everyone around me is safe, and I am okay. And I think that these kind of techniques might have helped Harry in those moments. I think being as overwhelmed with the trauma of his past as he was, it's no wonder that he passed out. Right. I mean, as I mentioned, Harry, you know, was snapped back into a memory he had when he was one years old. What does this suggest about the longevity of trauma? I love that you're asking this question. There is no timeline on trauma processing. And what that means is that when we experience something traumatic, it stays with us. It forever changes us, not only in our life, but in the lives of our children. We see that as descendants of, let's say, Holocaust survivors, not only their children, but even their grandchildren and great-grandchildren have forever altered DNA where they might be more susceptible to depression and PTSD. They might show more of a startle response, even if they themselves had never experienced direct trauma and so it makes sense that for Harry even though his trauma occurred when he was one year and three months I believe right that his trauma reactions and memories have stayed with him all this time and will likely stay with him forever for many trauma survivors Trauma is something that's a part of us that might not fully go away but the way that we respond to our trauma memories, the way that that trauma affects us, that part can change over time, especially as we allow ourselves to process our trauma memories. Mm. So 
While Harry was experiencing the memory of his mother's death, he was sort of unconscious. He fell off his broom at that time while he was experiencing these memories and was falling towards the ground when Cedric Diggory caught the snitch and won the game. After finding out what happened to Harry, Cedric complained that it wasn't a fair win and he wanted a rematch so the match could be fair. What does this say about honor and Cedric's character? I'm so glad that you brought that up, right? Because that is the true representation of who Cedric is. He's somebody who's honorable. He's somebody that doesn't want to take a cheap shot. Had it been Draco, he would have had no issue with taking that snitch. But Cedric is somebody that if he's going to win, he wants to do it fairly, not when his opponent is unconscious. Yeah. Well, after Harry falls out of the sky, he ends up in the medical wing, surrounded by his friends, with very little memory of what happened. His broom is destroyed. It landed in the Whomping Willow and was just just decimated. And that's pretty much where this chapter left off. We're going to go ahead and end this episode of Harry Potter Therapy. Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. For all of our listeners out there, we are sending out free signed copies of Dr. Scarlett's book, Harry Potter Therapy, an unauthorized self-help book from the restricted section. To enter the drawing, all you have to do is tweet about this podcast with the hashtag Harry Potter Therapy. We will choose one lucky listener every month to receive their free copy. Unfortunately, due to high postage costs, international listeners will not be eligible for this promotion. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Stay magical, stay safe, and take care. The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening.